It's good to see you all. It's nice to be back and uh, to teach a little and, and open up the scriptures with you, with you today. As we, uh, as we get started, so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to look at uh, the book of Jonah. And there's a lot of good stuff going on in Jonah. So and we are going to study Jonah for the time being. We'll see how long it takes us. Uh, there's, there is a lot to Jonah. And the neat thing about Jonah is you, there are a lot of themes in Jonah that you can find in other places in the Old Testament. And, you know, if we just look at the very beginning of Jonah, so Jonah chapter 1, this is, this is one of those books that, and I know this will be a surprise to you, but the Greek in the the, the Greek for Jonah is very interesting. <laughs> um, there's a lot of languages, a lot of language and word usage that makes us think about the New Testament and the Gospels. And just, you know, thinking about this, if we look at just the first verse of Jonah, Jonah 1.1, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. The first, the opening words of the book are, It happened that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. So, right away it emphasizes the, the word of the Lord. And that frames everything. Now, it is similar to John 1.1, if you remember how John 1.1 begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning, right? So, you have this opening of the Word of the Lord is, is the key, it is the most important. And, the difference, of course, is in John 1, 1, it references our Savior, right? The Word made flesh, basically. In this case, it's just the Word to the prophet. And God often says in the Old Testament, I am the Lord. And this is, in a sense, the proclamation of His name without giving the name. And... We see this come up a little bit in the text. And we also have examples of this, like in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. So, you know, in Greek, it's kurios, kuria, you know, kuriu. And we also know Lord or Adonai is a word that was used in the synagogues to avoid saying the name. Because, you know, the, the name would be Yahweh, right? And so when we are given the name of Jesus later in the New Testament, we are being drawn closer to God 
And you can reference Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11 in that regard. But then, what then is the Lord and His Word to do in this book? So there's a couple of things. There's five questions to think about in terms of what is the Lord and His Word to do in the book of Jonah. And so the first thing would be, what shall the Word do with a prophet who flees from the Lord? So that's kind of a big question, right? What shall the Word do with a prophet who flees from the Lord? And that's kind of an open question then. What happens to people when we go against the Lord's Word? Well, oftentimes it's not fun, right? The Lord will allow us to go for a while. But I've often looked at, especially people with, you know, the baptized children of God that stray. Uh, and we all know, right? And we have this in, even in our families and, and people around us where they're baptized, they belong to Christ, but then all of a sudden they start to wander away and, you know, then we get nervous and we get worried and we pray for them and we don't seem to see any change, right? They just keep wandering away slowly. But I often think of particularly baptism as like, you know, a surfboard where, you know, you always hook the cord up to your, around your ankle, right? Because you're out there in the sea and, you know, you go for this wave and bang, you crash and you go flying 10 feet away. And thankfully, you know, you're not going to lose your surfboard. You're not going to become disconnected from your surfboard because you've got that line, right? And I often think of baptism in this way with people that the Lord allows people to sort of go off a ways, but at some point, you know, the Lord will likely pull back, right? And that's, that's an encouragement for us when we think about people that we love, children, grandchildren, siblings, parents, whomever, friends. Uh, we worry about people, but the Lord will, you know, the Lord has his work that he will do. And so I think this first question with the book of Jonah, what will the word of of the Lord do with a prophet who flees from the Lord, the Lord will bring good out of it. And so that's, that's what we're going to see when we, when we look at this. The second, the second question, sailors, because sailors do factor into this, sailors who call upon all kinds of gods but are terrified at the name of the Lord, what, what does this mean for us? So the second question is, what do sailors who call upon all kinds of gods but are terrified at the name of the Lord, what do we learn from this as we watch this unfold? And then the third is, what do we do or consider with a monster of the deep who swallows the Lord's servant in the midst of the Lord's word ruminating about and then the fourth question and it what do we 
what do we think about an ignorant city that needs to hear the word of the Lord and what happens there? And then the fifth question, what does God do with a prophet who hates the success of the word? <laughs> That's the other thing, right? So five, five questions that center around the word of God in, in dealing with people and situations. So the problem of the book is not to know, not how we are to know God, but how God is to deal with us and our efforts to not know him or to not be content with his way. So let me say that again. The problem that this book deals with is not how we are to know God, but how God is to deal with us and our efforts not to know him or to be content with what he does. Okay, the problem of, that this book considers is not how we are to know God, but how God is to deal with us and our efforts not to know him. Which sounds weird talking to a bunch of Christians, right? Because we all want to know God and we all want to know what he's doing unless it doesn't suit us. Then it's a different matter. And so this is the situation with Jonah. It doesn't suit Jonah to have these Ninevites hear the word of the Lord. He doesn't want that. That's a terrible idea. You know, they're horrible people. They need to, you know, rot in their, in their own stew. You know, they've got, they deserve everything they've got coming to them. And that's, where, that's how Jonah feels. And so ironically, Jonah in Hebrew means dove. Isn't that interesting? And of course, what do we think about? The Holy Spirit, right? Coming down, you know, in the form of a dove to land upon Jesus at his baptism. So Jonah, and this is the great, there's so many ironies to this book, and this is perhaps why I like this book. It's so personal on so many levels, right? You have this prophet Jonah, he's a man of God, and he's in turmoil. And the turmoil is God's word works. <laughs> Even when he doesn't want it to. So Jonah means dove. So he is a sign of peace. Uh, like the dove who, that comes back to Noah with an olive branch signaling the end of God's wrath in Genesis 8, verses 10 to 11. So you have that going on. And then as I mentioned, you have the Holy Spirit descending as a dove on Jesus. Okay, so Jonah, the son of Amittai. So Amittai means truth. So there's another one. Nineveh means beautiful. Now, there's a lot to, to think about there. 
Um, so Nineveh is a sinful place. And the people have, have done, lived terrible lives. And yet, it's considered beautiful. So what would be the spiritual connotation to that? But that in God's eyes, though their lives and their practices have been abominable, he still sees them as worth saving. You know, there's something beautiful there. Did Nineveh reject God, or was that, like, God was not known to them? Right, so they were just going in a completely different direction. So they were aware of, like, rejecting it, or it just, the, the word did not come to them yet? Um, that's a really good question. I think at some point the word had come to them. And now I'm trying to think. Uh, there is one verse somewhere in, I think it might be Nahum. And you don't have to, let me just, you don't have to go there, but let me just see. Let me look here. I've got a note somewhere that, Nahum, yeah, Nahum 3, 19. So, the book of Nahum opens up. The very first words of the book of Nahum are the burden against Nineveh. Okay? The burden against Nineveh. And then you have this vision that Nahum has in regards to Nineveh. But... Then at the very end of the book, the, the book ends with these words against Nineveh, which gives you some insight into Jonah's perspective as well. Nahum chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Your shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? So that's, that's Nahum's response to this whole thing. So Jonah is in good company in that regard. So Nineveh means beautiful. But then what happens here as we look at the text? So the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before the Lord in verse 2. Then in verse 3, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So, and in Greek, literally, from the face of the Lord. So, Jonah, so to speak, looks into God's face, right? Being a prophet, he, he knows what God's teaching. And then he's going away from the face of the Lord. So, Jonah is, you know, the picture of Jonah is like, an unrepentant person, right? We turn our back. 
You know, repentance in Greek is to have a change of mind. So it's a turnabout. So to sin, to live in, you know, unrepentant sin is to turn your back to the Lord. And so that's the image here that as he heads to Joppa, he turns his back on the face of the Lord. He's trying to go away from the face of the Lord. Well, it's just uh, ironic that Jonah is saying that. I'm not, I don't want to help him, but like, they're not worth it. And he's doing the same exact thing that they've done. Like, that's why I was wondering if they had turned away from the Lord or if it was just they hadn't heard the word yet because if they've turned away, that's exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you wonder if this whole thing is teaching Jonah this empathy about you're turning away and I still give you grace. Can you extend that forward? Right. Yeah, it, you know, it, it is so interesting because, like, if you think, so here's the way I see it. You know, the Ninevites, they were long, my understanding is they're long past God's word. But, you know, if you think about just sort of the genesis of everything, you know, at one point the, the word of God had gone out, but then people lusted after the desires of their hearts, right? And started worshiping other gods. And so the Ninevites were well and long into that. Um, and the thing is, is they didn't like the, they did not like the people of God, you know, so, you know, they were deep into their idolatry. And so at some point, and right now I can't really like, I guess I hadn't really thought about at what point did, would those people have, have parted from, from God's word, but I think it's a long time. Yeah. Of the people? Of Nineveh? Yeah, I heard Assyrians. Yeah, right. Um, well, that's a very good question. It is. Yeah, that's that's right. And so, you know, they, boy. Yeah, now I got to think about what exactly was their makeup. I mean, you know, if you think about. Yes, go ahead. Of Ham. Yeah. And was it the Egyptians from Ham? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that is that is exactly right. Nimrod built Nineveh. And uh, so, you know, that's what we, yeah, we would actually really have to do that, wouldn't we? We'd have to go back to Genesis and look at Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Shem is where the people of Israel come from. You know, the Sem- uh, Semites? They, Semites come from the name Shem. So, you know, if you go back to that, I don't know if I've got any notes on that. Well, we often, 
we, yeah, we, we often, yeah, right? Like when it's personal. And that's the thing, like the Assyrians hated the people of Israel. They did all the time. And, and they would make every effort that they could. I, th- this opens up like a whole nother conversation because like when you get to the Gospels, for example, Jesus goes to the Samaritan, goes up to Samaria first and starts doing stuff up there. And the reason was the Assyrians, you know, they hated the people of Israel, and they were always trying to conquer them. And so, like, you know, if you say, like, Assyria's over here, and then Israel's over here, and Samaria, the people of Assyria would always come through, and they'd want to conquer down here, conquer God's people, and they'd always come through, and they would... They would basically pillage and plunder the Samaritans down there. I mean, there's just this huge history. Um, because, and so this is, why, this is why I think Jesus goes up to the Samaritans and you know, starts loving on them early because they always were in the way. And then that you have this, this history also of one of the kings of Assyria, he, he really caused some trouble with the Samaritans because what he did was, when he came over to conquer them, he then took the wealthy and the powerful from this area and brought them back and took them captive. But he left the common people over here and then he injected this area with people of different religions and practices and things like that and had them mingle. And so they, and I use this term in its technical sense, bastardized the Samaritans so that they were like a mixed, you know, just like kind of this mixed, you know, with different religions and and all this stuff. And that's why the people of Israel always looked at the Samaritans negatively because it was just kind of a mess up there. And so, yeah, there's all this, all this going on. And you think about, um, you think about that, the fact that the Assyrians, you know, a powerful army of the world always trying to conquer God's people and doing a lot of damage to them in the process. And so there was a lot of ill feelings. And so like the godly answer is we should always be willing for God's word to turn people around. Jonah, it was deep and personal. And, you know, I think about, I don't know that we really know of any personal situations with what Jonah might have suffered by the Assyri- by by the Ninevites or the Assyrians, but I think about Paul and how you know Paul had arrested and had Christians killed, and they think he didn't just sit by and watch all the time, but actually, you know, was active in having you know killing Christians, 
So imagine then when he is converted and then they start to welcome him into the churches and just, you know, the church was small, right? Relatively small in those days. Can you imagine if Paul had been responsible for martyring one of your family members or friends and now here he is in the church with you and at the altar with you? That's personal. I mean, that would be a, that would be a hard thing to get over. And so I wonder if this is some of what's going on with Jonah, that you know, he had seen so much in terms of what the Ninevites had maybe done. Um, and so it was just very personal for him. Right, that's kind of where he seems to be, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so Jonah, Jonah is the successor of the great northern prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So if you think about a lot of the things that happened with those two, Jonah is the successor of their work. And, you know, living at the peak of Israel's power, so then... There was a King Jeroboam II that expanded Israel's territory. And so Jeroboam II restored the ancient borders from Labo Hamath, the northern border of Lebanon, to the Sea of the Arabah, or the Dead Sea, and even captured the city of Damascus. Um, and so, you know, the fact that Jeroboam did this, so Jeroboam II... Um, he, he had captured the city of Damascus, the capital of the Aramean kingdom, the most pressing enemy of Israel at the time of Elisha. And so even Amos the prophet, if you think about the book of Amos, he prophesies against Jeroboam in Amos 6 and 7. But then 2 Kings 14.25, Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which is in Galilee, only a few miles from Nazareth, which is interesting. So he has this pedigree that, you know, he's, he's from Galilee, only a few miles from Nazareth. So there's a lot cooking there, right? So Nineveh, so back to the text, Nineveh means beautiful. And so to call against Nineveh is the same as a prayer of invocation. So when you, when you look at this text, arise, go to that great city and cry out against it. Boy, it's so, the Greek says, the opening verses are, uh, and it happened that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, rise up, and a journey into Nineveh, that great city, and preach in it. It's, so literally the Greeks, and preach in it. Because there has been a cry 
has gone up against this evil city. And so Jonah arises to flee to Tarsus away from the face of the presence of the Lord and he went down into Joppa and then he found a boat and he wants to go to Tarshish. But this, you know, verse 2 is like a public outcry for help in a way because if you think about it, because it's evil, right, evil places become oppressive in certain ways. And the people experience this. So, you know, you have the leadership, but then you have the people that are still living under the oppression of, of the leadership. And keep in mind, I hadn't thought about this until I, I was looking at a commentary on this, but they didn't have police. You know, there was, there was military, but, you know, there was no civil, you know, fraternal order of, of police to help keep peace. And so they need someone to cry, to come to, to, to their aid. And so the cries of the people are to come before God. So then in verse 3, as we see Jonah rose... And Jonah should know what Psalm 139, verse 2 says. Let's take a quick look at that. Yeah. Yeah. Two different translations. It is. Well, and the Septuagint is a little different. You know, just a little background. So your Old Testament comes out of the Hebrew Masoretic text. And what I read to you is the Septuagint. So you will see differences. Um, what's interesting though is the Septuagint is probably, so the Greek Old Testament as opposed to the Hebrew Old Testament is what the apostles, the apostles would have been more familiar with the Septuagint. And what's interesting is in Paul's writings, like if he references something from the Old Testament, it's also often from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew Masoretic text. So I always like to look at the Greek just to see like what's going on there in the Septuagint. Yeah, I'm just wondering, it might just be my Bible because I have a living Bible, but mine in uh, verse two says, go to the great city of Nineveh and give them this announcement from the Lord. I am going to destroy you for your wickedness rises before me. It smells the highest huh, that's interesting. I'm, yeah, that's, you know, that's pretty harsh. Yeah, that is pretty harsh. I mean, not that they don't deserve it, but if I were Jonah, I were telling them that, I'd be afraid for what they would do to me. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so at any rate, look at Psalm 139, verse 2. The psalmist says, you know my sitting down and my rising up, you understand my thought afar off. So what's Jonah thinking? Right? That's the practical question. You can't run from the Lord. <laughs> you can run, but you can't hide, right? <laughs> yeah. And 
But this is just how strong he feels, I guess. Now, if you jump ahead to Jonah 4, verse 2, he tells you why. So, hopefully this isn't a spoiler. But Jonah 4, verse 2 says, So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in a loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. So that's why he flees. Because he knows that the Lord is merciful even to people, right? Right? That's the funny thing. Jonah, Jonah's not thinking maybe, well, maybe he is, but... You know, maybe he's like, I know how, how merciful the Lord has been to me, and I know the Lord's going to be merciful to them. But maybe at that point, he doesn't equate his sinfulness with their sinfulness. Like, I have small sins, they have great sins. Yes? Um, even like, while I was thinking, like, you know, ramifications, you know, they might have to spend holidays together, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and with Jesus and the temple, well, you know. Um, in with God and temple worship, now they're going to be melt, you know, blending into one people, and that might be a hard rock to swallow. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. The holidays with the family. Everybody's right now. Everybody's got to get along. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's a good point. And so. So that's what he's thinking as he runs in the opposite direction. But fear also existed because, you know, Jonah going to Nineveh, think about this. Think about this. Jonah going to Nineveh, an Israelite going to Nineveh would have been like a Jew preaching in Berlin in the 1930s on a street corner. That's what it would be like. So there's fear there too. You know, there's like, I know the Lord's gracious, but you know, I don't know that I'm ready to become a martyr just yet, right? So now let's, so let's pause for a second and look at the New Testament. So go to Matthew 16, one to four. So Matthew 16, one to four. So you have all this going on with Jonah Jesus himself, Jesus the crucified, lines himself up with Jonah. So Matthew 16. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So Jesus lines himself up with Jonah. And then uh, Matthew 
Let's see, Matthew 12, 38. It's the same thing. Um, but he gives a little bit more in Matthew 12. But notice, this is two different places in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew 12, 39. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So there is some clear connections that Jesus makes uh, with Jonah. So Nineveh is known for power. Powerful army, swift destruction, ruthless in its approaches. Tarshish, on the other hand, was known for wealth. So when you think about this, he finds a ship going to Tarshish, so he pays the fare, and he goes down to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he opts for possibilities, right? So he opts for a place that has wealth and ease and is far away from the presence of the Lord as he, as he thinks. Um, so Tarshish later became Tarsus. And Tarshish, being a place of wealth, was also a place of success. And so this is where Jonah wants to go. So, but then also note the language in verse 3. He went down to Joppa. So I often think that there's spiritual language in, in all of this. Because on the one hand, so in the Greek, verse 2 says, arise, anastathi in Greek, like to rise up. He, God is telling Jonah, arise, right? Go up. But then what does he do? He goes down to Joppa. You know, I think there's something going on there, right? You can go to the... You go up into resurrection with resurrection language into the presence of the Lord, or you go down away from the presence of the Lord. And there's other places like this in the scriptures. So let's see here. Psalm 28, verse 1. Here's some of this spiritual language. Psalm 28, verse 1 says, to you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear that? Lest I become like those who go down to the pit. And then uh, Psalm 30, verse 3. O Lord, you have brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. 
And then uh, Psalm 88, verse 4. And by the way, this is kind of a spoiler alert, but uh, Jonah has psalm language, which we will get into in the course of our Jonah study. So it, it makes sense that you have these connections. So Psalm 88, verse 4. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength. And then Psalm 143, verse 7. Answer me speedily, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down into the pit. And then there's a Proverbs 1, verse 12. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole, like those who go down to the pit. So see how that... Language just keeps popping up in terms of hell language. So the fact that he goes down to Joppa when the Lord says, arise and go to Nineveh, there you go. Now think about that in terms of our lives. We all are like this where, you know, nobody likes trouble. You know, like I drove in today and my car engine light goes on and my fan won't shut off. And I'm like, come on, right? I'm like, just a little ease. You know, I just want to coast for a while, you know? And, you know, that's, we, we're all like that, right? Like, we all just want a little bit of goodness, joy, peace, ease, contentment, happiness, right? And yet, what does the Lord often do but the Lord often presents us with challenges and difficulties, and sometimes it's really rough. You know, Luther, he said there are three things that make a theologian, and one of them is tentatio, horrible suffering. <laughs> and you don't have to be a pastor to be a theologian, by the way. <laughs> So anybody can get the tentatio, oratio, meditatio, and tentatio, prayer, study, and, and intense suffering. And what's that? Yeah, I know it, right? Totally. And so that's the thing. Here's the irony. Like, God works in different ways than we would. So we're like, oh, Tarshish, it looks so good. Nineveh looks so terrible. But the irony is, all the blessings will come by going to Nineveh. All the blessings for Jonah will come by going to Nineveh. But he doesn't see it that way. And so, you know, when you think about your life, it's very similar. Like, we have the picture. I want to go to Tarshish. And the Lord's saying, no, you're going to go to Nineveh. No, it's cloudy over there. It's stormy over there. There's lots of trouble. No. But all your blessings will come from over there. And, you know, it's, it's the spiritual journey. So, you know, couched in these opening verses is something very tangible for you. And that is whatever the Lord brings before you, Realize that he means it for good for you.
that you will find great blessings in it. Um, the blessings may be different than you anticipate, but you will find God's hand and you will find a greater peace and joy by just following the Lord's direction. And it's not easy sometimes, but the Lord will, he sorts everything out in his good pleasure and for, for your good. Because you are his. And so he will care for you all the way to the end. And, you know, Psalm 37 is a great psalm in that regard. Um, you know, Psalm 37, it does really talk about the troubles in the world, the, the troubles that the psalmist faces. You know, it opens up, you know, the, the psalm opens up, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. See, that's, that's basically what is supposed to happen with Jonah. The Lord will take care of it all, and, and Jonah will find great blessings if he just goes in the direction that the Lord wants him to go. And so the whole psalm, you know, in verse 7, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who springs wicked scheme, brings wicked schemes to pass. And then in verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So, in some way, God has a plan that the Ninevites in their repentance will bring a greater blessing. And that's true, right? Boy, if those, if those people that are always trying to conquer God's people, if they repent and come to the Lord, wow, wouldn't that be good on so many levels? So in verse 4, so back to Jonah chapter 1, God, or chapter 1 verse 4, so God acts, verse 4, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. So the Lord responds. God acts. And this happens often. God acts. And then verse 4 is like the flood. So, you know, you think about, you think about what happens with Noah and his family, and the people at that time, but in a way that this, this is worse, it literally says in verse four that the Lord hurls the wind as if it were a weapon. Yeah, it's, it's a very violent term. And then in verse five, the sailors feared. And, and, and this is where it gets very interesting. They were, the sailors were filled with great fear and they cried out each to their God. And 
This, this word for, uh, so in, in English, let's see what it says in English. Every man cried out to his God. Uh, in Greek, it's they bellowed. And it's, this word is, uh, it's kind of like a word of despair and exhaustion. And it's, it's the same word, I believe, that is used when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's like he bellows, you know? And so there's a lot, there's a spiritual connotation to this in the sense that it's in this like solitary despair where, where God is away. You know, so you think about Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bellows this. So, you know, re remember, Christ suffers hell in our place as he hangs from the cross. And so when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he is experiencing is hell. He's experiencing the absence of the Father's loving presence, which is hell. Right? And so the bellowing springs out of the Father being absent. So if you think about this in terms of the sailors, the sailors worship different gods. So they're filled with fear. They cry out, but their cry is one of despair because their cries go out to nowhere. So they bellow. They, they bellow in a frantic sort of, you know, situation. And it's different though, when you get to Jonah, because where's Jonah? Yeah, he's sleeping in the belly of the of the boat. He went down again, see? Isn't that like Christ when he was sleeping during the storm? Yep, so, so there you have a mirror image also, and we'll get to that next week. Jesus sleeping in the, in the, in the bottom of the boat, Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the boat, and um, so, they are throwing the cargo, so back to verse 5, they're throwing the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Now think about this for just a second, and we're gonna, we'll have to end, but we'll pick up right here next week. These sailors, sailors, especially of the ancient, the ancient kind of sailors, right? They were rugged people. They had seen it all, and they had seen storms. I mean, they had weathered a lot of bad storms on the sea. This storm is beyond what they were used to. And so there's the fact that they feel this great fear and that they start 
throwing their cargo, that's, that's a big problem. I mean, these, peop- these sailors are despairing of their lives. Because what happens if they make it to port and there's no cargo? Man, that is not going to be a pretty situation in the ancient world. That's trouble for the sailors. I mean, they're, they're in big trouble. And yet, that's, they're just trying to make it out alive. And then, so before we end, go to Psalm 107, 23 to 27. Psalm 107, 23 to 27. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths. There's that language again, mount up to the heavens, go down to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. That's the sailors in Jonah. And they are good at this. They know what they're doing. And so next week, we'll pick back up right here and we'll look at the contrast between the sailors up on deck versus Jonah sleeping soundly down in the bottom. All right, so let's close with prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, mercifully look upon our infirmities and stretch forth the hand of your majesty to heal and defend us. Through Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen. Amen.